welcome to the podcast about people. I'm Daniel Lance. I'm Paul Gilman, and this is Podzo One. John Watts is an Australian-born veteran of both the Australian Army and the Virginia Army National Guard, and he now works as a national security analyst and business consultant in Washington, D.C. John joined us for an episode to tell us about his life's journey so far in four poetically-themed sections, Horizons, Serendipity, Transitions, and finally, Wizards and Curtains. So to tell us all about that, here's John Watts. Uh, well, John Watts, welcome to Podso One. Great to have you. Uh, I, I'm I'm very excited because I haven't seen you in a while, but I also love your accent, and I'm hoping that our listeners love your accent as well. Uh, and so, how does Paul Gilman know uh, an Australian Army guy living in D.C. for the last ten years? I think you were telling us, right, John? Right. Yeah. So it's, yeah, I've been here about ten years. I think it was about eight years ago we last saw each other. Um, we had some great times, but. I mean, it's a really random story and it actually kind of speaks to some of the things that I'll, I'll talk about a bit later on. So I was, uh, I was living in Canberra, which is the capital of Australia. I was working for the Department of Defense out there. I was in the, in the Army Reserve. And uh, I came over here in about, 20, about mid-2010, maybe August 2010, uh, for a work trip. And while I was out here, I kind of, at the time, my, my now wife, um, you know, she's American, she's from California, she was living in Canberra with me. We were talking about coming back to the States and the obvious place to come back was to come back to DC because we'd been interns here. When you're, we were younger, we knew the place. It would be easier for me to get a job in, in the defense space. So we kind of, we knew that was a possibility uh, even though we didn't know exactly how we were going to do that. So I was exploring um, ideas for what that might look like, you know, like what does living in DC look like? And so when I was out here, I actually went down to uh, Fort Belvoir. I, I met with the uh, 29th, division um, head, you know, headquarters, I can't remember exactly who, and I talked to them, you know, I, I met someone from, from the Pentagon and said, oh, I know someone here, call this guy. So I, I, I don't know, I got, got the train or the taxi or something down there and went and, and met them at headquarters and said, hey, I'm an Australian, I, I might be moving out, I'd like to explore coming and doing a reserve thing. Um, and anyway, so then like a couple of days later, I was uh, having, uh, having dinner with some other friends from the Pentagon and, and one of them said, I'm in the National Guard as well. You know, I've got a friend who's a captain. You should meet this guy. And I was like, all right, yeah, I mean, can't hurt to, to have some backup options, right? So in the Pentagon, like, so in the, you know, you'll know this point, in the, in, the, um, in the entrance way to the Pentagon, there's like a stand where they have like mementos and they sell coins and hats and that kind of stuff. So literally there at that like, memento stand in the pentagon i meet adam frost for the first time and he's a friend of a friend who introduces me so we're standing around in the foyer and he's like oh hey you know nice to meet you you know so you're in the, in the reserves cool i'm in the guard all right well let's stay in touch you know gave each other a card so anyway back in back in australia and um i i worked a couple of floors from the colonel who was in charge of all sort of you know, reserve engagements overseas. So I went up and knocked on his like little doors, his little closet, knocked on his door and said, hey, sir, you know, I'd like to do this. Is it possible? And he's like, yeah, we actually, you know, we don't have it written down anywhere, but we do actually have a, have this agreement. So you can do it. I was like, all right, cool. So um, so what's the process? He's like, I don't know. No one's ever done it. I was like, well, <laughs> you know, how should we kick this off? And he's like, um, you know what? Just like write me a memo. And like what I do need is I need written agreement from the national guard that they want to receive you right like we'll pay your your, you know your salary or your you know your funds but you know they've got to agree to take you 
So I, you know, wrote to 29Div and, and, you know, my contacts there and just got radio silence and in modern parlance got ghosted, right? So I decided to just like air it out through his Hail Mary and I hit up Frost. And I'm like, hey, man, so I'm still looking to come out. Would your unit be interested in having me around? And I've still, I've still got this somewhere in my Gmail, this email chain, right? And so it went from Frost to uh, Lawrence Yacubian to Rue yeah. and was like, um, hey, do we want an Australian uh, reserve officer? He's like, I don't know. Um, set it up to the boss. You know, I set it up to you, Paul. I said, you know, do we want a reserve officer? Like, I don't know. Why not? And send it up to division. And, and like, I've literally got this email chain of like one lines of like, I don't know. Why not? All the way up and all the way back down. And then I forward this to this colonel and I'm like, will this do? And he's like, I don't know. I guess let's pitch it in and see what happens. So we send this memo up to like the head of, you know, defense forces or, or head of uh, reserve management or you know, some general. Um, and somehow gets gets ticked off. So I'm like, all right, cool. So I rock up in DC the next year. I moved out there, I think January, 2011. So I think I met you probably like February or March, right? One of the first parades for the calendar year. And um, because of where I lived and, and where the unit was based, I just met you guys at the training facility, right? Out at, at, at one of the forts. Uh, I can't remember which one. And so I rock up and I got there, you know, kind of eight or 9 p.m. on Friday nights. Everyone's been there all day. They're kind of been setting up. And I rock up and just kind of like, randomly pull up at the tent go this looks like the headquarters I'll, I'll wander in here and I immediately get accosted by I think it was the medic who was this big like um you know historical military like dress up uh you know I was really into like you know uniforms from World War One, and he had this obsession with the Australian light horse right so he immediately grabs my arm and starts chewing my ear off about how he's getting a saddle made that's like you know accurate to the 1914 saddle which was slightly different to the 1915 saddle and i'm like i mean cool dude but like am i supposed to report in somewhere or like you know and then i i, I can't remember if i met you that night or, or someone else but anyway someone threw me an m4 and said you're going out with the enemy party and suddenly i'm like in the back of a humvee and getting shipped out to the virginia woods somewhere right and i'm <laughs> so i jump out the back of the humvee with all these guys i don't know and suddenly we're running around like you know, being enemy party, um, you know, so in, in military terms, you're pretending to be an enemy so that the tr the guys who are training have something to pretend to fight against, right? And so uh, I think I was, again, I think I was again with, with Hobbs then. And uh, anyway, so later that night, um, we're debriefing one of the platoons we hit. And I think Hobbs got on the phone and he wanders off into the night. So it's pitch black, no lights, couldn't see anyone. I'm just standing there. I'm like, I mean, I guess I'm actually like the ranking officer here. So I was like, all right, well, let me tell you what I think. And there was just crickets, just dead silence, right? So I, I like give them this big, you know, thing of like what I saw, what I like, what I didn't like. And it's just dead silence. And there's one voice comes out of darkness like, um, so I guess you're the exchange officer then? <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was my first night of the National Lesson. So the next day, the next day, which I think when, when I met you, and I remember like you kind of, you know, took me on, on your wing and you're like, all right, let's go around. We'll, we'll see all these. So we're going around and we're seeing all the units. And I remember we walked up to, to you know, one young uh, soldier and, and you're like, how did the training go last night, soldier? And, and he's like, uh, oh, sir, you know, it was, it was good. But like, we got ambushed by like a platoon of Brits and they were just everywhere and they were cutting <laughs> us up. And they're just, and you're like, well, it was an Australian and there was two of them. So, you know, so anyway, that was, that was my first memory of my first uh. weekend of like totally just jumping in the deep end, having no idea what I'm doing. But, you know, it was awesome. I loved it. It was a great time.
that's that's how the uh, Army National Guard Infantry Unit greets you. Just like, yeah, hop in the back of the truck and uh, we're going to go play enemy. <laughs> there was, yeah, there was one funny one. I, I don't think it was that weekend. I think it was like later down, uh, later on. But there was this young kid who was like 18 or 19, came up to me. We were on the range, right? And he did the thing that he, you know, you're supposed to do. You know, I don't, re- I don't know who you are. I don't know why you're wearing weird, you know, can't see me suit, you know, pajamas. Um, you know, sir, you know, why are you here? Or what are you doing? You know, and I was about to answer him, and some corporal ran over. No, 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 that's the Australian officer. Don't harass him, bro. And this, and this soldier stopped, and he just got these eyes like saucers, just you know, as wide as as anything, right? And he just stopped like a deer in headlights. And he looked at me, and he was silent for a minute. He goes, "You're Australian. You must get a lot of girlfriends." I was like, <laughs> "I mean, I guess not, like not right now, but I, I do okay." Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that was that was some pretty fun times. There's some pretty interesting experiences from it. Yeah, I uh, the courage you had to to jump in uh, feet first or head first into that is uh, something that not everybody possesses. And yeah, uh, we were as much of a culture shock to you as uh, you were to us, especially some of our like eighteen and nineteen year old guys that had never left the state of Virginia, and all of a sudden, I, I think Australia is actually on another planet. I'm not sure where it is. At least I didn't get too many of them. Like you speak English really well, um, but the, the spit bottles having like the the, the chew bottles and stuff, yeah, like yeah. you know, in the in the pouches everywhere. That was that was definitely new to me. I'd not seen that on on deployment before. Yeah, a lot of uh, tobacco uh, abuse for sure. Daniel, you've got to have an amazing question because this has to feel like a, a foreign conversation to you at this point. No pun intended. Um, no, pun intended. no I, I mean, I, I think the uh, not only the the courage to jump in head first, but also the persistence and and getting in. Uh, like, wh- why did you want so bad to to join the the National Guard? I mean, I guess why not, right? Like, so you know, um, I think it was it was there as an opportunity, like, you know, and until you get told no, then, then why not explore it? And, uh, I think a, a lot of what our, where I've got to in life has been that just, just ask the question, what's the worst that can happen? You know, lick the stamp and send it. Um, and I think that was, yeah, I mean, I, at the time I was probably, you know, I was in my late twenties, I was probably fairly ambitious at, at that moment in, in my, in my life and, and trying to experience things. And, you know, part of it was I wanted to replicate and, that, and that, that's going to kind of come back, to, to the themes that we're going to talk about later on was, you know, when I first moved out here, a large part of it was I kind of wanted to recreate or rebuild my lifestyle and my identity and who I was from Australia. I mean, obviously in a, in a different country, but, you know, my identity at the time is made up by several strong pillars and, and being in reserves was one of them. And I mean, you know, why wouldn't I want to run around with the National Guard and, and you know, keep doing what I do? Yeah. I, I enjoyed it. Did you find that uh, your skill set transition tra- uh, transferred pretty seamlessly from the Australian reserves to the uh, Virginia national guard. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's obviously, you know, um, I've often referred, you know, like reference that has been kind of like a, it's been like a cross code athlete, right? Like, you know, how to do the athletic stuff, you know, how to run and jump and catch a ball and stuff, but there's always nuance about, you know, the playbook or the, you know, the, the, the rules in a particular league or anything like that. So there's definitely like there was lingo and there was acronym and there's just ways of doing things that were slightly different, but at the heart of it, I mean, who, who it was that was attracted to this sort of activity, who did this, why they did it, what they got out of it, the, the camaraderie that came with it, you know, that didn't change. And, and I kind of knew that going in. Um, I'd been in, in the army for a while at that point. I, I'd kind of seen that in the past. Um, you know, I, I, to that point, right, like, so there was one time, so I was in, as I said, I was an intern in D.C. Uh, 
in my last year at college or university around 2004. And I remember there was one time I was I, someone I'd met in our building I didn't know very well and they had a bunch of friends and we all went out to some house party in DC and I didn't know anyone other than this like one person who I didn't know for like maybe a week. And one of these guys, this is 2004, so, so not long after, I mean, January 2004, so just after the invasion of Iraq, right? And I had, I think I'd maybe just graduated as a lieutenant in the reserves, hadn't really done anything, hadn't really been anywhere, been in for a couple of years, but but really didn't feel confident in, in my experiences or my credibility for, for these sorts of things. And this guy was, I think, a Marine who'd like been in the convoy, who'd, you know, like been going, you know, gone into Baghdad behind a 50 cal machine um, gun. And to me, like he was legit. He'd been out there. He'd done it. And, and you know, for, you know, my self-consciousness or, 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 you know, lack of confidence, whatever, was like, oh, he's, you know, he's a professional. I'm just an amateur playing at it kind of thing. And so I was, I don't know, not nervous, but a little standoffish with him. And like, you know, I, you know, I didn't want to try and, um, you know, made too many assumptions and stuff. And he just like embraced me straight away. I was like, oh, are you in the military? Oh, that's great. Put his arm around me and, you know, like, and we, we had a great night that night. It was, it was quite funny, actually. We had a, I had a fairly big night um, at, I think, out of University of Maryland uh, at some dive bar. And I, you know, we'd, we'd had quite a bit to drink. And at some point I got separated, separated from him. And apparently he'd been like running around the bar going, I lost my string, I lost my string, and where's my string? <laughs> but anyway, so that, yeah, but that kind of just showed to me, I think in that moment that like, there was a, you know, that brotherhood, it didn't matter where you'd been or what you'd done or, or how legitimate your experience was, that there was a camaraderie to it. So I kind of knew that going in, but you know, that was a large part of, I guess, what I was looking to to maintain or, or, or want to keep doing because I've been in that lifestyle for a while. Mm. Yeah, the, the camaraderie mostly c- comes out of uh, shared willingness to do hard things, I yeah. think, right? Or, or like, you know, poor decision-making skills. Yeah, that too, yeah. Go ahead, Daniel. Oh, uh, I, I think I lost Did you lose it? Oh, yes, you yeah. did. That, it happens. that happens once an episode as well. Yeah. Good times. So, John, you'd sent me uh, – I gave you four possible topics, uh, and they were all very pragmatic, grounded, uh, very concrete concepts. And you came back with uh, horizons, <laughs> searching, and I understand you, you changed that later, searching, transitions. I mean, I can't wait to get to this topic, wizards and curtains. And of course, you replace searching with serendipity. And uh, you may not know this, John, or remember this, but I don't deal well with uh, words that have more than two syllables. <laughs> but but we'll make it work. So well, let, let's start with horizons. Okay. Well, like before before we cave this, I mean, like so my my current role is at a think tank, right? So I don't know if you guys watch Game of Thrones, but you know. Uh, um, the, uh, the dwarf, you know, says like, you know, what do you do? I drink and I say things. So my thing is like, I wear a suit and I say things, right? Or like I drink and I know things. So my thing is I wear a suit and I say things. doesn't matter what I say, as long as it sounds credible and I look credible, like that's, that's the game, right? Is you just, um, you know, you play, you know, you, 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 you do, you say things and you do things. And (laughs) this is the inevitable of, of every Zoom call is, uh, you know, one of the kids. That's awesome. Hello. So Which it's a, always me. Yeah, it's always you. Yeah, is. Hello. I'm Zoe. I'm six years old. I lost two teeth. And when I was younger, a long time ago, we got to travel. Actually, um, while my dad was asleep and Sean and we were in a hotel, me and mommy had popcorn and watched a um, movie um, and headphones um, on, on, on the tablet. And we watched a really fun movie. Then after the movie and eating all the popcorn, 
popcorn, we we went to sleep. Oh my goodness, Zoe, that sounds amazing. I wish my daughters were six years old again. I, I think really that's the best. I think that's the best story I've ever heard on this podcast. That, that, I'm I'm, je- I'm jealous, Zoe. That sounds like an amazing story. Wait, Thank you for yeah, sharing. I an amazing story too that my cat can eat. No, no, you need to get a dip bed done. It's getting late. <laughs> you, you'll, you'll have to tell Zoe later that uh, she's going to be world famous to to on a podcast. Okay. Good night, Zoe. <laughs> Good night, Zoe. <laughs> <laughs> We're really wow. hoping she's going to start coming out of her shell soon. Right, right. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so anyway, so, so back to the topics, right? So, like, you know, um, everyone's entitled to my opinion. Um, that's kind of, you know, I don't think anyone that knew me growing up would be surprised that, that I'm uh, obnoxiously opinionated as a, as a career path. Um, but, you know, so abstract concepts and, and phrases is, is kind of what I do. So... So yeah, horizons, serendipity, transitions, and um, wizards, wizards and curtains. So horizons. So you know, when I when I was thinking back, you know, about my story, I think I had a, had a good childhood, but it was very, um, in my mind, it, you know, it was it was just very ordinary. I mean, I guess everyone thinks that their childhood's ordinary, right? But you know, good school, good community. You know, we lived close to our you know family, our grandparents. Uh, you know, lived within walking distance of the school. Um, it was safe. It was quiet. It was calm. But it was very, it was very quiet and calm. Good night. Uh, so enough. Good night, Zoe. See you, Zoe. Um, you know, so it was, it was very, you know, um, average, I guess. Uh, you know, it might seem a bit strange being on the other side of the world and that kind of thing. But, but for context, uh, the city I grew up in uh, it was about the size of Austin, about a million people. Um, but the next biggest city was probably about eight hours, nine hours drive away. So it'd be like the distance from Austin to New Orleans with pretty much no major city in between or, or, you know, LA to San Francisco. So fairly remote, fairly quiet, calm, safe, all those sorts of things. I went to good schools, you know, focused on academics. Uh, there was just nothing really, um, super exciting or edgy or or risky or, or exciting, you know, about that. Uh, we, we traveled a bit when I was young, uh, traveled overseas. My mother was a German teacher, so um, she had a lot of overseas friends and, and we'd, you know, travel a bit. But, you know, I remember my, my school sat on a hillside looking out over the city and then the, the ocean beyond, a bit like LA, you've got kind of hills lining along the, uh, along the coast. And we used to always sit on these grassy terraces and just kind of talk and, and you know, hang out at lunchtime. We'd always kind of stare at that horizon. And there was always something in me that just kind of wanted to see what else was out there. Just, it felt too small and too cramped and, and just too safe. And I just, I always felt like there was something I needed to go looking for over the horizon, right? And um, even from a young age, I watched the world news very young. Um, I was always fascinated by like, you know, nature documentaries from Africa. Um, I, I'd hang out with the international kids. Um, you know, as I said, we, we had a lot of inter- engagement with, with international friends and family. Um, I just always wanted wanted to go looking for something more or something else. Uh, and I, you know, for, you're probably familiar with gap years, um, you know, in, in Australian British culture, it's very common to take a year off after high school before college and, and go traveling, go do something. So I did that. I spent a couple of months in, uh, in Europe, spent a summer actually in, in rural Illinois around Springfield, um, up near the Wisconsin border at a summer camp up there as a camp counselor. 
um, you know, traveled a few other times to Indonesia and Singapore and those sorts of things. So was always traveling, was always looking, but just always, always wanted something more, wanted something over the horizon. Um, and I think um, it's kind of part of why I joined the army, but I think that was more serendipity as much as anything. I always, you know, I'd, I'd always been fascinated by the military as, you know, when I was young, um, but always thought you had to be kind of some, you know, Superman hero to, to actually join up. And then a friend of mine did it. And I was like, oh, well, if he could do it, I don't see why I can't. So uh, me and another friend went and, and, you know, talked to the recruiter and then it kind of became a competition between the two of us to see who could could get in first and, and then we're in. And, you know, um, that path, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I literally wouldn't be where I am doing what I am if I hadn't gone down that path. Um, that's not to say I wouldn't have been as happy or successful or anything else, but I wouldn't be on that path. Like that was such a defining moment that, that set off a chain of events that, that ended up where I am uh, for better or worse. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, if I, um, if I talk to anyone or I, I don't think if you, if you asked anyone that, that knew me when I was younger, I don't think I would be surprised that I'm living overseas or, or anything like that. I think there was always that desire um, to go to go looking uh, for other things, and and this is where the kind of the, the horizon, the serendipity, kind of interchange, right? Because um, I, so I came and uh, did a did an internship um, here in DC. Um, but how I found that internship was that my godmother worked at the university, and she knew through a colleague of hers there was this program uh, to come and do an internship in DC through uh, UCLA, uh, but it wasn't well known. And she's like, oh, that sounds interesting. You should go and talk to this person. This person will find out. So stop me if this sounds familiar. I went and asked them and said, what do I have to do? And they're like, I don't know. No one's ever done it before. Um, <laughs> fill out nice. some paperwork, nice. fill out an application. Let's see what happens. Um, and so I, I, I did and it, it worked. I don't know if anyone's ever done it quite that way again, but, but somehow I, I made it work and I made it happen and, and came and did it. And I actually, that's where I met my now wife um, was on that, that uh, experience and she was actually supposed to be there at a different time but for, for unforeseen reasons got delayed to the same period of time that I was there uh you know so completely serendipitous in that sense so the finding out about the the opportunity going on it you know it was all serendipity in that sense I just randomly kind of stumbled across those opportunities and then kind of made something from them um so you know after I got back from um doing that internship I did my uh, honors which is kind of like a fourth year of college um and at that point, I wanted to go. I wanted to go traveling. I wanted to roll the dice. I had a friend who had gone. I think he'd gone, spent a year in Canada, and then gone backpacking. And it ended up working for like a, um, some sort of African-based advocacy NGO uh, that had like you know, it was like pressing mining companies to be transparent about how much money they paid foreign governments, you know, or something like that. And he was like living in London and he was flying out to Africa every other week. And like, he was like, he was living the life that I wanted, right? That's all I ever wanted to do is travel the world and go on. So I, I had that in my head. And as I came up to the end of my, uh, my time at, at college, um, I decided, you know, I'm just going to roll the dice. I'm going to do what he did. I'm going to go backpacking. I'm going to go overseas and just see what happens. And I, I, you know, did a, you know, teach English as a second language certification so I could do some sort of you know, get some sort of employment along the way. I think my um, then girlfriend, you know, now wife, uh, who I'd met in the program, we both looked at teaching English in Japan for a year. Um, we didn't get on that program. So I think I booked like a one-way ticket to Turkey. Uh, why Turkey? I don't know. It was, it was interesting. I had to roll the dice. I had to go somewhere. Um, so I thought I'll start there. I'll go see what happens. And then, you know, if I end up on the side of a mountain in Nepal, you know, in, in two years' time, then so be it. But, you know, let's see what happens. 
So that was my plan. And I was intending to quit the army. I'd been in for about five years. I had been um, moved on from my unit. So, you know, you go to your home unit doing the thing you're trained to do. It's a really tight knit group. And that's what I've been doing. And I've been moved from that into a training establishment. And I wasn't really happy about that. I wanted to go traveling. I knew that I wanted to get out of the city. And so I really came in with, quite frankly, a terrible attitude. I mean, I was, I was coming in looking to pick a fight. I was looking for any excuse for someone to annoy me for me able to throw a tantrum and, and you know, say, that's it, I've had enough, I quit, right, I'm out. And I mean, I was intending to quit anyway, um, so it didn't really matter. And serendipitously, um, the CO at the time of that unit, that, that training facility, was this formidable guy. I mean, just, it was one of the top barristers in, in the city I lived in, uh, just a very sharp, uh, very polarizing guy. But if, if, if you did right by him, he really looked after you. Um, and anyway, I was from the same core of him. So, you know, we did the same job. We were both armored guys. We come from that same first unit. And he picked me out and said, I've got jobs for you. Um, I'm going to, you know, make you do this, this, and this. And I was like, you know, you know, you can make do whatever you want, but I'm going to pick a fight any day now and, and you know, uh, and, and, you know, pop smoke and, and bail. Um, but I got really heavily mentored by him and a really good adjutant. Uh, and they really looked after me. And, and that, you know, I really found kind of a, uh, a niche there. You know, I had a lot of success doing what I was doing there. Um, and then he had a unit on the other side of Australia, so Darwin. So Adelaide, where I grew up, is in, in the central, on the southern coast, but in the central uh, centre of Australia. Darwin's on the far side. And this place is, I like to, you know, if I compare it to like if, if Nebraska was in Florida is kind of what it's like. I mean, it's literally days drive from any other city. It has that hot tropical weather where everyone guy goes a little bit stir crazy. It's filled with tourists. It's just a wild, it's the wild west up there, right? And I went up there, um, you know, with the military just to kind of do some things. And then I got there and I thought, well, I went looking for an adventure and I've kind of found one, you know, without having to go anywhere, right? And I'm getting paid pretty well. I can start my career. I can, I can get some experiences. So I decided to just stay put there for the year. And, you know, just by chance, a number of things happened. We got hit by a huge hurricane, was, you know, um, cyclone up there, you know, on par with Katrina. It was, uh, it was going to hit the city directly. You know, we spent days and days planning for a worst case scenario. And then it kind of jinked in land last minute and, and lost all its power. So it ended up being a non-event. And then a couple of weeks later than that, there was a uh, attempted double assassination of the president and prime minister of Timor-Leste. And then suddenly Australia was looking to deploy troops into Timor as a peace stabilization. I didn't get to go on that, but I was the you know one of the coordinating officers in the city. So within days, I had special forces that I was trying to hide at the airport. I had battalions of, of parachute uh, paratroops coming in. I had to find accommodation for, and I was just kind of in this mess, right? And at the time, again, I really didn't put a lot of stock in what I was doing because it wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, I just kind of did what was in front of me and, and did what I had to, uh, but I really didn't value what I was doing or think it was all that important. Um, and then while I was there, I kind of, I, I, you know, thought a little bit about what next and what do I do and, and decided it was time to get on with my career or, or, or take the next step. So I applied for a bunch of uh, what's called grad development programs, which is kind of like the, the presidential fellowship program here in, in, in the US. Similar kind of thing. They take some grads out of high school, you move around government a little bit and you kind of handpicked as being like, the future of the department and you, you kind of get looked after a little bit. So um, that was, I spent about 18 months up in Darwin and then I, you know, I applied for a bunch of programs, got the one to the department of defense. And then I moved to, um, you know, to Canberra, uh, which is the capital of Australia in uh, I think about 2007 was when I moved down there. Right. So um, 
that was where that, that transition between the, the kind of, you know, horizons, that searching for something else, going looking for the adventure, kind of stumbled into serendipity where I kind of found an adventure, but then I kind of found a bunch of opportunities that kind of set me on this random path. And, and when you look back, it seems like this smooth, you know, winding, you know, coherent, logical path of how you got to where you were. But obviously along the way, there's, there's forks, there's unknowns, there's random kind of uh, guesses and, and things you stumble upon. So, you know, there was no, um, there was no inevitability to the path that I took, but, but it all made sense. And so I got down to Canberra. And when I got there, I mean, I, you know, I was there somewhat by planning, but serendipity kind of struck again. So I'd been there a few months and um, one of my supervisors, it was a colonel who'd spent some time at a think tank, um, you know, as a, a, on a secondment, right? And um, so I knew some of the think tankers in town. And there was one in particular, uh, goes by the name of Ross Babbage, as a uh, you know, professor, a thinker uh, of strategic studies. And he just started this new think tank called the Kokoda Foundation that was all about thinking about long-term strategic issues that face Australia and also about incubating young talent. So he felt that there was a, a generation of missing strategic thinkers in Australia. Uh, and so he was setting about trying to like scoop up all the young emerging, you know, talent and, and try and help them be better at doing stuff so that when they got into positions of, of authority and, and, you know, decision-making that, that they would be better prepared for it. And so this supervisor of mine said, uh, there's a you know, this guy I know, he's doing a workshop tomorrow morning. Um, he's looking for some young people to get their, give their opinion. Would you be interested in going? And I went, free breakfast, you know, being a, a fairly, you know, uh, poor junior staff member of, you know, in my mid-20s, like free breakfast, sure, why not? So I went along to it and really enjoyed it. Um, you know, it was, it was empowering to have someone want to hear your opinion on something. Um, and so, you know, I, I went up afterwards So thank you so much for this opportunity. Really enjoyed it. He's like, oh, well, I'm doing this thing tonight. We're doing a lecture, um, you know, that's, that's oriented towards young people that, you know, we're going to talk about a, a relevant strategic issue. Do you want to come along? I was like, yeah, sure. I can always go to the bar later. Why not? So I came along to this thing. It was really, really interesting talk. Really enjoyed it. You know, felt buzzy about, you know, um, being in the center of policy and, and, you know, thinking about these big issues. Once again, went up to him afterwards and said, really enjoyed it. Thanks again for the invitation. He said, well, we're actually doing this, um, you know, this, this weekend retreat with a bunch of young people. And we're going to get some senior leaders and we're all going to kind of go away to, a, to an offsite and, and talk about a topic. But we could really use some young people to tell us what they think and how we should go about it and what works, what doesn't work. You know, can I buy you and, and some, a few other you know, people lunch and we can talk about it? And I was like, free lunch? Why not? Um, you might start seeing another thing. Um, <laughs> So we you know, went to lunch and they said, you know, should we do this? Should we do that? What would be of interest to you? What would be a challenge? So we, you know, I gave my opinion to it and, and things. And, and, you know, we went and did this Congress. It was really successful. Again, there was, there was a bunch of us, probably about five or 10 of my friends and I were all really interested. And we got kind of involved in this. Um, and then at varying, at varying levels and varying ways, we all kind of got involved in helping this think tank think about what it should do for young people and how it could help young people and what we'd like to see and what we should do and all those sorts of things. So we started doing that. And then at a certain point, um, you know, about six months, 12 months later, it all started to fall over. People were getting busy, people were getting distracted and they just weren't turning up. And uh, I sat down with Ross again, had, had lunch, I think. Um, and he said, look, you know, this is, this is not going as well as I like. I don't know why, you know, we're not be able to, to keep momentum, why it's not sustainable. You know, what should we do? I said, well, look, the problem is, you know, when everyone owns something, no one owns something, right? Like everyone's doing it of their own goodwill, but there's no real accountability 
to it. You know, there's no, if someone doesn't turn up, there's no, there's no consequence to it. Um, but there's also no reward for it, right? So like, you know, how do you brag to, to your boss you're involved in something if it's just kind of an amorphous group of people randomly turning up? So I said, look, make it a formal planning committee, you know, have X number of positions, have someone in charge, you know, and give them formal recognition and, and be able to say, I am on this committee doing this thing. And so, you know, the, the think tank thought that was a great idea. They decided to do it. They made me the inaugural chair of it. Um, and I think I, I led that for about uh, 18 months or so uh, and then handed off to, to my deputy to, to take over and lead. And that thing's still going today, 10 years later, which is, which is really cool. It's nice to see something like have its legs and, and you know, there's so many, you know, um, offshoots that it's helped kind of inspire and, and grow. There's a, there's a program in, uh, in, in D.C. called SimSec that looks at maritime security issues. Uh, which I understand from the guy who started it was was inspired by a similar event I did in DC way back in like 2011 or 2012 that it came to and he thought that was a great idea and he should do his own. So that that was kind of cool. And so um, that you know I got involved in that. I spent three or four years uh, in Canberra. Uh, at a certain point, I uh, my now wife and I had broken up. We reconnected while I was traveling to the US, and she moved out to Canberra. I did my master's degree. Um, but I, I had this real sense that like I had to have a, a full stop on my time there, right? Like I had a line in the sand. If I, if I stayed too long, I would get too comfortable and I would just fall into that, that, you know, that pattern that everyone does. You get, you know, well-paid job, buy a house, settle down, and, and then you never leave, right? And, I, and again, you go back to the horizons. I still just felt there was something more of the horizon. There's still something more to see and do. Um, and I just, I wasn't content with where I was. So serendipitously, um, one of the uh, one of the board directors um, who who helped run this this talent incubator, uh, he owned a consulting firm in DC, which is why he did this thing was it was in part to, to spot talent. Um, and he had had an office he'd started up in DC, and he knew that my then girlfriend was American, and and so he said, you know we're looking to expand our office. Would you be interested in going over there? And, and you know, I'm not going to fly over there, but if you go over there and turn up at the office, you'll have a job. We'll get your, your, your um, uh, you know, your um, visas and all that kind of stuff sorted out. So there you had it. I had a, a paid work opportunity in DC. You know, my wife wanted to come back to, or then girlfriend wanted to come back to, to the US. Um, I wanted to get out. I wanted to go and see the next level. DC was was the heart of, of all those things, of all that policy, of all that thinking, the strategic the issues, all that kind of stuff. So to me, that was that was going to the city, you know, you know following the Yellow Brick Road um, to the Emerald City, right? That that was it. I was getting the path to it. And so that's, that's what I did. And, and in the lead up to that, I mean, I was over there for a workshop related to that think tank was when I met Frost and, and that was part of that setting up. So I knew I was moving over and I wanted to reconstruct that life I had. My, my life in Canberra was built on the fact that I, you know, I, I, worked, I had a good professional career, but I also did these think tank things, thing, you know, outside of that, which, you know, when you're doing a lot of junior work, it's, it's, it's a real grind, right? Like it's pretty boring, monotonous staff work. Um, I had my master's, I had that, that, that I could invest myself in emotionally that, you know, if I bored or, or frustrated I wouldn't say there's anything remarkable about what I did I mean I guess it's you know to someone who's not done it you know even the ordinary things are somewhat remarkable but I never got to deploy I never um you know I never uh you know did anything exciting I didn't achieve anything although there was one moment which leads us into, into the transitions, was one thing that I'd always identified myself with um, when I was younger was, you know, I was always 
willing to do what, what was needed. I would drop anything. You know, you know, when I when I traveled overseas to go, you know, my gap year or, or to the internship, you know, I'd, I'd break up with my then girlfriend. I would discard all, you know, anything that would hold me back. I would go and do the thing I was going to do. And one thing I always wanted to do in the military was go on deployment. And it didn't matter what, it didn't matter where, didn't matter how much it would suck. That was, you know, that's getting called up to the big game. I wanted to go and, and prove myself in the big game. And a friend of mine called me up and said, I need a captain to go to the Solomon Islands on a peacekeeping mission. Now, this was this was not a real deployment, right? Like this was supporting a police thing. It was basically walk around and be seen. There was no danger. There was no risk. There was nothing interesting, but, but it was a deployment. I could say I deployed as part of a, you know, on a military operation. Um, but at the time, my then girlfriend, now wife, um, had just moved out to Australia. So she moved out for me, didn't know anyone. She was about to switch visas and here I was saying, like, I'm going to go off to a little island in the Pacific and leave you alone in a foreign country for six months to fend for yourself. You know, just, there's just no way I could, you know, you know, make that decision. It is no brainer, right? But that was the first time I'd ever let personal or, you know, that sensible side of things say, no, that's not the right choice. And to me, that was a real watershed because that was that transition of who I was as an individual and that, you know, ambitious, do anything, drop anything, go, you know, go for the jugular to that little bit more pragmatic, um, think about the bigger picture type, right, that, that moment. But so, um, you know, so that's, that's how I came to DC was I had the job lined up. Um, I'd lined up with Paul and, and with his unit to, to come and, um, and join the National Guard. As soon as I got here, I started trying to replicate some of those think tank things that I've been doing. I tried to recreate the identity, those pillars of my life of who I was and who I, you know, who I saw myself as being uh, when I got to, to DC. And, and um, you know, even the Guard was a big part of that, but, you know, it only lasted a couple of years before, um, you know, the Australians said, we're not going to keep supporting this unless you come home and take over a unit, which I didn't want to come home yet. So, you know, I, I you know, retired out of the military and um, that was the last time I saw Paul. But, you know, the, the think tank thing at the time didn't really pick up. Um, I'd gone from being fairly well-known, fairly recognisable person, Albert Junior, around my fairly small city uh, to being, a, you know, not even a tadpole in a massive ocean. Um, and so that, that was a big shift. That was a big shift in identity of who I was and what I was about, and that was a big transition point. And that really kind of defined my 30s, or at least my early 30s, was, was that transition. So that's the first two. I'm going to pause now because I've kind of been on, on full send for a little while. Uh, I'll let you guys kind of ask any questions or, or poke or prod. Yes. So I'm curious uh, what your camp counselor experience in Illinois was like. Because that's got that's got to be. I mean, you're you're going from Australian culture on the coastline to the middle of America, and you're you're a counselor for I imagine a bunch of American uh, kids. Yeah. So I mean, talk about like um, culture shock, right? Like you'd expect going to Indonesia or Thailand or Ukraine or something. You know, I, I've never had a bigger culture shock than that. I mean, here I was. I'd grown up in a you know fairly academic. A private school in Australia in the suburbs in a very safe, quiet, urban environment um, to a very rural, you know, one where like, you know, a lot of people hadn't left the state. A lot of them didn't know where any of these countries were. It was, it was just a complete culture shock on every level. And I mean, I had a great time. Uh, part of it for me was just, a, a you know, and this will be another theme is uh, sociologically, I've just found it fascinating. I, I don't think I understood what I, what it was at the time, but, you know, I just, I love 
studying the, the other people, not not in that kind of you know cold, you know arrogant way, but but just watching you know watching the dynamics, watching the lifestyles, seeing why you know how other people lived, and and it was just such a such an awakening. I mean, I had a great time. I ran a little bit wild. I mean, you know, one thing that anyone that's travelled will know is is you know when you're you know free of some of the shackles, some of the consequences, some of the accountability of being within your own environment, your own community, um, you can you can get a little bit crazier because who's going to find out and you know what consequences are there after you leave a couple of months time and of course i had the accent so i was a fairly big novelty um and so you know we had we had a lot of fun one of my favorite one of my favorite things was we would go to um go to these small diners right and i got a couple of guys my age and um you know the uh the waitress would always come over to take our order and you know, as soon as I heard the accent, suddenly our t- table would get a lot of attention and, and they'd always be coming back to check that we, you know, we're doing okay and that kind of stuff. And But the funniest thing was always like, they'd say, you know, come over and say like, you know, what did you want to drink? I was like, oh, I'll have a Coke. I'm sorry, a what? A Coke. A what? Oh, a Coca-Cola. Oh yeah, we don't have Coca-Cola. Uh, we have like Pepsi. Like do you have Mountain Dew? Mountain what? Mountain Dew. Oh, Mountain Dew. Yeah, we got Mountain Dew. And so then like, but then like what would happen is I'd, I'd order something, they wouldn't understand me. And then like everyone else at the table would kind of be like, oh yeah, I'll have what are you having? And this, the, the poor look on their face of just like, I don't know what to do in this situation. because <laughs> I've been told my order, but I don't understand anything that's just been said and I don't know what to do about it. And they just always look like a deer in headlights, the poor things. And, and so I was, you know, it was a lot of fun like that. We, you know, uh, we got to a lot of mischief and, and it was just, it was a great experience. So do Australians think of the American accent in a similar way that Americans think of the Australian accent, do you think? Um, it's a little different. I mean, I think, um, so one thing that's kind of interesting, and I think this kind of ties into my feeling of needing to get out of my home city and stuff, is there's a, a phenomenon that's well-known in Australia as a cultural cringe. So it's this idea that um, anything that's kind of um, local or homemade is inferior to something that's foreign, particularly European. Um, you know, so when I was in high school, you know, everyone followed American sports as basketball, as baseball. American football is very big. It's more professional, it's more flashy, it's more, you know, it's more everything, right? Um, and so part of that is, and Australians also always feel isolated, right? Because they see themselves as more European. They're a long way from Europe. So they always have this really external mentality where they always want to travel. Um, they always want to, like, absorb TV from overseas. We, we get a lot of British TV, we get a lot of American TV. So there's just a lot more exposure to to the, the rest of the world and that sort of thing. So it's not as much of a surprise. It's not as much of a novelty. Um, and they've, you know, most people have kind of traveled or know someone from overseas have had more foreigners and stuff. So it's not quite as exciting, but yeah, I mean, there's certainly some people who do. I mean, I'm sure my wife could recount some stories at, at the bar in Canberra where she got some attention from the accent. I don't think it was the accent personally, but um, you know, um, <laughs> could, could, could have been any number of things. John. Yeah, that's right. I, yeah. You know, mind you, that's, that, that might be why we're still here 10 years later is if I take her back there, then I lose my biggest edge, right? If everyone sounds the same as me, then I'm going to have to actually work, work to, to maintain her affection. So it's yeah. safer to stay here and it makes it much easier. For me. You're counting on the accent to last 50 plus years. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's lasted all right for 10 years. Well, I have been told it's, it's going soft by a few people and that's, that's been pretty devastating. Yeah, um, it, it, it's it's not as strong as it was uh, eight years ago, John. I have to say, yeah. But it, I would say it's still very noticeable, and I've also I've heard of of studies about um, the impression that British, particularly, but also Australian accents have, and it's just uh, I think the result is that people are more likely to believe uh, and see authority from a British or Australian accent 
uh, than an, um, than an American accent. I don't know if you've ha- kind of experienced that phenomenon at all. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think the other thing from the Australian accent, or at least what it was um, likened to by one of my old bosses was it's a bit like the Southern accent. It's kind of disarming. It's a little bit kind of, because it's kind of casual and it's laid back and it's a little bit, you know, um, you know, it, it just, it, it can be, um, uh, yeah, I mean, a little bit deceptive, right? So people get kind of lulled into a false sense. The other thing though, I mean, and I found this really, really handy in my role over here is like when I was consulting and, and stuff is I could go into a meeting and I could ask a stupid question and worst case scenario is everyone be like, oh, he's just Australian. He's probably drunk. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but like, you know, you could kind of ask the dumb questions that everyone was scared to ask because you always play the like, I don't know, I'm just a foreigner. But like, why are you doing that? It's really stupid. And so like, it was actually really effective kind of um, research technique, I guess, in a sense was because it would disarm people. And, and the other thing is, and, and Paul, you were saying this is like, I think every single member of that battalion came up to me at some point and was like, oh, I work with the Aussies in Iraq or, you know, everyone's got a story about like, you know, their uncle traveled around Australia for a year or they met some guy in high school or whatever. And it's, everyone wants to share. So you've got that instant bonding, right? So it's easy to build a rapport. Um, so it can be really, really valuable. The flip side to that is, you know, I've been in, in meetings where, you know, I'm acting as basically a, a representative of the American government and like, you know, a bunch of Americans on and suddenly I start talking authoritatively with an Australian accent and just throws everyone off. They're just like, wait, what is happening here? Um, I don't understand. So anyway, it's, it, is, it is good fun. But yeah, no, it does have that effect. I think less so now, actually. Last thing I'll say about the accent. When I was here as a intern in 2004, so 15 years ago, probably nine out of 10 people would think I was British off the bat. Um, and then, you know, maybe one out of 10 would, would guess Australian. Um, nine out of 10 now will guess Australian. And like, I, I was down in like, I was at Paris Island, I think, or, or uh, down in, um, in Texas, um, you know, at the Coast Guard facility with a 19 year old Coastie from like Oklahoma. And he picked up on it after three words. And I was like, where would you have heard this before? How would you even know that? Um, but you know, it is, it's, it's much, it's much more widely recognized than it was, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. The, the internet, uh, and it's pro- proliferation, I think probably has a lot to do with that. Yeah. Well, we make a lot of stupid, we, we do stupid stuff and make videos of us doing stupid stuff. So the kids watching people do stupid stuff on the internet, probably hear the Australian accent, a disproportionate amount. So, so <laughs> are Australians known for uh, drinking a lot? You know, they are, but I mean, you know, that being said, I always, I always think that's a little bit of a, um, a misnomer. Most of the Americans, particularly when I was here in college and, um, you know, doing an internship, I mean, I had a good time. I'm not going to, I'm not going to try and hide from that, but, um, you know, I feel like my, uh, Californian roommates were, were far harder drinkers than I was. Um, and everything get attributed back to me. If, if something crazy happened, it was like, Oh, it's that Australian guy again. Uh, so I had this like outsized reputation for being this troublemaker for doing stuff because, you know, it was easy to say, Oh, there's a drunk Australian guy going around causing trouble. Um, but actually I think the reality was I probably didn't drink as hard as they did, but I mean, yeah, I've, I've certainly had, uh, had my moments where I've, um, imbibed more than is probably sensible, but, uh, I don't know. I, I don't really drink much anymore. I mean, I guess, uh, for me, drinking is a real social thing. I've never understood having a beer just for the sake of having a beer. Um, so I drink in excess when I'm around a lot of people. Um, but just at home for the sake of it, it doesn't hold a lot of appeal. I think Americans are very comfortable with the idea of drinking just for the sake of drinking. Fair enough. In contrast. I mean, <laughs> did, the flip did, side did, is I'd rather just go out and be social every day and then I have an excuse for drinking every day. Yeah, so. Right. And by the way, Daniel sounded a little judgy there. <laughs> 
Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, maybe I should speak for myself more than. Uh, <laughs> no, it's all good, man. Than America. So you you ended up not going to Turkey, but literally, John, the the way you described uh, the first uh, what thirty plus years of your life uh, sounded like you just f- found an, an international map, a world map, and just started throwing darts. Yeah, kind of. I mean, that was that was intent. I mean, like. You know, when, when you say, you know, where would you want to be in X number of years? I didn't really have a map of like, I wanted to be here doing this thing. Um, but I knew that I wanted, I knew I wanted to explore the world. I knew I wanted to go out. I knew I needed to go adventure. And that's, that's that kind of horizon theme was I knew there was something more out there and I wanted to go and see what it was, right? I wanted to get to the bottom of it. I wanted to find out what the truth was, what the reality was, you know, how things really worked, you know, what is that thing over there? And, and so there was a lot of that, a lot of that wanderlust when I was, I was younger. I mean, there's there certainly others who traveled more than me and literally did just kind of go city to city, um, seeing the world. I think that is part of the Australian culture. Um, you know, there's actually, there's a really interesting song um, a couple of years ago. It was by a band called The Waves, this Australian band called London Steel. And like, it's really common, really, really common um, for Australian, for young Australians, either taking a gap year or just after high school to go to London and spend a year or two working in a pub there and just living the life and huge expat community. Um, but there's this line in it and this whole song is this kind of um, reflective melancholy talking about the people that have left, the home, like left behind back in Australia and, and how, you know, I'm still here in London, but one day I'll come back. But there's this line in it that says, that goes, um, I think I've finally grown up and got my sense of self of now. Um, and that to, to me, that, that really resonates, right? Like I think a lot of that, it wasn't just about um, geographically going places. I think there was just always that urge for more. There was just always something. There was a new challenge. There was a new something. You had to push further. You had to go further. You had to go and achieve something. I think that's, it's fairly, I think, um, characteristic of my generation of kind of a late Xer, uh, maybe early millennial um, generation where we were kind of told, you know, it doesn't matter what you achieve. You can always achieve more. Go and be an astronaut. Go and be, you know, head of the UN. Go and be president. Um, But I I feel like we were kind of imbued with a sense of, or a lack of ability to be satisfied with where we're at. There was always something more. Uh, and I, I certainly felt a lot of that. And, and part of that was geographically wanting to go out and see it. But a lot of it was just going to go and experience other things, go and do other things, go and be someone more than what you are and go searching for that. Hey, Daniel, uh, you're, you're a millennial. I'm, I'm an Xer. Does he sound more of an Xer or a millennial? Uh, I don't know. I think that um, I think that the millennials – certainly have uh, a romanticization of traveling the world and seeing as much, seeing as much as they possibly can. The thing that I think makes you more of a Gen Xer. And and of course, you know, I'm speaking in generalizations is the hustle and the, uh, there we go. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I I was going to say cynicism. Yeah. There's that too. (laughs) Oh, would you, well, cynicism, I would would consider a feature of millennials. Do you consider yourself a cynic? Oh yeah. I mean, I, like I, I, you know, again, this is part of the Australianness, right? Like there's this, um, again, another, another phenomenon is what we call the tall poppy syndrome. This idea that like anyone who gets above their station should be cut down and everyone should be equal and seen as equal and, and no one should be too flashy or, or, you know, whatever else. Um, but you know, like that's a facet of, it. but I think there's a wider thing of this, just, you know, I, one thing I've really struggled with, with America is, is kind of the extroversion of it. You know, this like, you know, take the military thing, right? All the medals. In Australia, you get a medal when you deploy and you shoot someone. 
not not quite, but like, you know, you yeah. have to be there in the heat. You don't get a silver star, congratulations for being there, for turning up to training, right? You don't get a like, you know, your boss is in a nice mood and felt like giving you something, right? You don't just get rows and rows. You can get guys who are special forces with 20 years of experience and they'll have five. Um, you know, so, and, and, you know, this has been an interesting thing. I guess this is part of, of the cultural assimilation. You know, you go to some of these promotional things and I have the big galas and the big whatevers and they have speeches by everyone. You know, I got promoted to from, um, I mean, you know, maybe not typical of it, but like I think the one medal I earned got mailed to me in my hotel when I moved to Canberra and I picked it up at the front desk. And uh, when I got promoted from lieutenant to captain, um, it kind of ticked over the day or whatever. I went down to the Q store and got some different slides to put on my epaulets. And then like went back to my office and tried to remember to, to introduce myself as captain instead of lieutenant. Like, there was no pomp, there was no ceremony. And, and frankly, I never liked any of that. I mean, I hated being saluted. I hated saluting. I just didn't like all that stuff, right? Like if you were, in my eyes, if you were a true leader, like in the Australian military, if you're a true leader who's respected by the troops, you never get called sir. Like if you get called sir, that means your troops hold you in contempt, basically. Because saying sir means they have to say it right? You hold a legal authority they have to respect and they will do the legal thing that they have to do, but they don't mean it. So they will say the thing they have to say technically, but if you're you know, in, the, in the Australian context, if you're respected by your troops, they'll call you boss or, or some other kind of slang term, right? And that means they're comfortable enough with you and your authority. They don't need all the pomp and ceremony around it because what you say goes and they know that you know that you don't need to have your you know, ego pandered to for that to be the case. So I've never liked that. I've never liked the pandering. But all that being said, watching, you know, Paul, what you've done in some of the ceremonies with your troops, you know, watching some of the, you know, I've seen some of my, my friends get promoted and, and do change of command ceremonies and those sorts of things, you know, colonel and, and above rank. Um, and, you know, there's value to it. I think I've been too cynical, too skeptical in that sense. Part of it's personal, just who I am. Part of it is cultural. Um, but I, I do in my older years kind of appreciate how important that is and what value that can play to an individual and, and, and that it's worth investing that time and energy and doing that sometimes, even if it's not something that I feel particularly comfortable doing the, hey there, champ, go get him, tiger. Yeah, it's like on the one side you have uh, outright neglect to uh, recognize people and on the other side you have eighth place ribbons for everyone who right. participated. you got to find and- that balance between it. Right, exactly. I, I do wonder how that um, the attitude of the what, did you call it no tall poppy? Yeah, tall poppy syndrome. Yep. Tall poppy syndrome. Um, how that translated in the uh, in the consulting and the think tank and the business world for you? So hold on, before you go there, before you go there, uh, I blame the Brits for all the pomp and ceremony. Yeah, that's <laughs> but, but yeah. technically, we should have more of that than you guys. So. Um, but, I, I, I'm with you. Americans fell in love with the pomp. I, I don't yeah. get it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I find it fascinating how you guys are so obsessed with the Royals over here and how excited they all are. I'm like, did you guys literally fight a war to get rid of it? Why, why <laughs> is it still Americans? In my Twitter feed. We're, we're, we're kind of dumb, John. I, I just, I'll say <laughs> so it. My, the last thing I'll say about the generational thing, right? So I did read once. There is a uh, there's an academic who's um, proposed a, a, a transitionary generation called Xennial, right? So the, the exact dates differ from, from um, you know, when you define it. For me, I think it's about 78, 79 through about 83, 84, right, which I fall in the middle of. And the reason is my little sister was born in 84 
And, um, you know, her experience at school was very different to mine. I mean, I didn't get my first cell phone until I was in college. She got hers when she was still at school. You know, I think I got, like, I started out with a Dewey Decimal System at the library. I don't think she ever did that. You know, I think my my initial, you know, years I was learning to use a typewriter, I only started, you know, so it was a real transitional period where I think we have a little bit of that tail end of that, that you know, skeptical slacker Gen X uh, uh, attitude where the Gen Y was starting to come through, but or the, the millennial was starting to come through. So I still consider myself a, an exer. You know, I, I loved Nirvana. I never got into Harry Potter. I think that's kind of the cultural, you know, the, you know what's the old saying? Like, you know, where you where your generation falls is whether or not you like Return of the Jedi or don't, and then whether you like, you know, uh, what was the, the prequels or not, you know. Yeah. Do millennials like the prequels? I don't know. Does anyone? Uh, the yeah. the millennials like the prequels in an ironic way. They're you know like I mean? for memes. I, I, uh. There was there was you know one of my my former interns is a good friend. You know he always said like you know he didn't he didn't think they were good movies, but like that's what he grew up with. That was his basis of you know his, his baseline uh, experience of it, and so he kind of appreciated certain aspects of it, even though there were bad movies. Right, yeah. and then hopefully you know as as was the case for me parents would you know kids would inherit a love for the original trilogy you know return of the jedi empire strikes back from the parents daniel i apologize i got you away from your tall poppy question and uh working in a think tank no that's okay i, I mean uh it's it is kind of a transitional question um but i am fascinated by uh the the work that you have done you know in the last i guess how many 10 years 15 years in dc so, uh, yeah, I guess, I mean, we, we could start with that, with that question, like your, uh, Australian, how, how did the cultural assimilation of, of, of all of your, um, you know, Australian customs and stuff and, and who you are as a person work when you transitioned into the consulting world and the business world and the think tank world of DC? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. So part of the reason I, I thought transition was the best terminology for this period was, it's not just, it, you know, there was a transition physically and culturally from Australia to America, and, and there, there's certainly aspects of that that, uh, that I can pull out. But it was also a certain time, right? Like, I think the early 30s is really transitional part of your life. Um, you know, professionally, you're kind of transitioning from being a junior staff member who's just trying to do the thing that his boss tells him to where you're starting to take on a bit more responsibility, a bit more leadership, where you're starting to dictate what others do and, and, and take responsibility for your own path. And I think there's also kind of a mindset change, right? Like, so in your twenties, you know, I've got to be everything. I've got to be good at this. And I've got to be that good at that. And I've got to this and I've got to that. I remember um, one of the early days, Lieutenant or Captain, an old Warren officer once said to me, and um, I tell this with a fairly big grain of salt, cause I don't consider him a particularly wise man or a particularly smart man. But I remember him once saying to me, um, you know, if you haven't made it by 30, you're not going to. And at the time I thought it was kind of harsh. But I think what, what, he's, what he's saying or what the bigger lesson from that is, like, by the time you turn 30, you kind of are who you are, right? Like, so in your 20s, I could tell myself that I was going to become a marathon runner and I was going to work out and get bulked up and I was going to be like, you know, I was going to eat salad for lunch every day and I was going to be super this, and I was going to be super that, I was going to learn 10 languages and that. By the time you get to 30, it's kind of like I've had 10 years to do that. If I haven't done it in the last 10 years, can I really, you know, honestly tell myself that I'm going to? 
Like, how am I going to wake up tomorrow and just suddenly be like, oh, I could have done it five years ago, but now's the day I'm going to do it. And look, you can, like people get in the late 30s, you know, late thirties or forties and become marathon runners or whatever else. And I think there's a transitional period around the the forties, but you know, the reality is I think, you know, you kind of are who you are. And I think the twenties, you delude yourself into thinking you can change all these things about who you are and, and you can define all that. Whereas your thirties is a start of that process of kind of acceptance of like, these are my flaws. These are my strengths. This is what works for me. This is what doesn't. And you look at ways to kind of mitigate that rather than, you know, like, okay, I'm not good at this sort of work. So I won't do that. Or I will work with someone else who is good at that kind of thing. And I think there's that, that transitional kind of awareness of who you are and your identity and those sorts of things. Um, and so that for me coincided with a really big professional transition and cultural transition of going from Australia to America, new city, new environment, new type of work. Until that point, I'd always been in, you know, in the government space or in the military. Suddenly I was in commercial and, and had just had a completely different mindset in the private sector, um, different who I am, what I was about, uh, you know, trying to reestablish myself in a new environment, a new context with, with new networks. Um, and so it was kind of interesting. There's kind of layers of transition all on top of each other. And then that kind of also laid on top of my professional, uh, my personal transitions, right? So I went from, I talked about my identity of who I was when I was in Canberra and then I got to, to DC and I tried to recreate that and, and didn't really, wasn't really able to. Um, and, and that was a big, not identity crisis, but it was a really big shift of like, who, I, who am I and what am I about? Because that's who I knew I was. I'm not that guy anymore. Who does that make me now? Um, and, you know, that was also, I mean, I, I think we got engaged in my first year here. Uh, we got married. Uh, you know, interesting side note uh, for our National Guard time, right? Um, all the, the the guard unit I was with was in, you know, Northern Virginia. A lot of guys from, like, rural Northern Virginia. And whenever I, like, introduced myself, everyone would always be, you know, like, oh, what's your wife's name? And I was like, no, not married. Um, just, you know, girlfriend, living with my girlfriend. Oh, okay. So you said your fiancé did what? I was like, no, no, just girlfriend. Girlfriend. <laughs> just girlfriend at the moment. Oh, Okay. So where's your wife from? And it was, I don't know if it was like, it was just like this ingrained tick or if they even were aware that they were doing it, but there was this like, it's almost like an inability to, to, to get this concept of like had living girlfriend for a long period of time that you weren't married to or engaged to. Yeah, you leave DC, you go about 30 miles out west or south and you're in the Bible Belt. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Um, yeah, but so I think we got married in, in 2012. I probably shouldn't say, I think. Um, we definitely got married in 2012. <laughs> Um, you know, and, and so that, you know, that, that created, you know, I think we bought a house in like 2013. So all that period of time, like I got here, I established myself, I started that professional environment, but I almost immediately started transitioning to a different part of, you know, personal life as well, where it was no longer about, you know, going and, and, you know, volunteering at think tanks after hours and going to happy hours to network and hobnob and, you know, being away every weekend with the guard and, and, you know, all be about me and doing what I want to do and, and searching and, and such. And so that, that transitioning period that started, you know, that moment of not going in deployment, I think that kind of reached its fulfillment. And again, that was, that was kind of an interesting, you know, period of time from my identity and still kind of is where it's still, you know, how do I identify who I am or what I am that I'm not, you know, I've never identified myself by my work. Um, you know, what are the other things I do, but also having something else that you can emotionally and, and uh, invest in and that are interesting outside of your relationship and your work. And, and, you know, when I finished with the national guard, uh, I suddenly had my weekends. I'd never had, a, I'd never had like free weekends since I was 19 right? Cause I've been a guard or reserve every second weekend. So this idea of like, I could actually do anything I want 
and I didn't have to be anywhere for anyone with any obligation was a really foreign concept to me. Um, and so I, I kind of experimented with different things. I play, tried playing football. Um, that kept going up until a couple of years ago where my wife said, uh, you know, you're in your late 30s and contact sports are no longer a realistic uh, pastime. Um, and uh, a number of moon boots and, and braces and, you know, compression sleeves and other things will tell you that's, that's the case. Um, and then you know, one of the other things I got into racing, uh, you can see my helmet behind me um, because I've always been into cars. I've always loved motorsport. And this was an opportunity to go and explore something. And so that was kind of, that's where I put my energy into it, right? It was, it was a bit like a national guard. You go away for a race weekend with five or six guys. We all have the same objective and you work together to get there. I mean, it's not, you know, up at 3 a.m. in the freezing cold in case an imaginary enemy attacks you. Um, but it was that same kind of intent. You get together and you work hard and you put in for each other and try and get a result. Um, and so for me, that was, that was a really important part and, and kind of that transition to that different lifestyle. To me, that's, that's a big um, anchor, I guess, of my identity now of, of that post-military life was that's what I go and do now. That's who I am outside of that. Is It's the same sort of thing, but, but in a different way and a little bit more individual. Hey, John, let's go back to uh, National Guard. You and I have a shared story with uh, a guy that I think you and I both had a huge affinity for. We were going to uh, Fort Pickett for 15 days. Uh, I, I imagine you were the only Australian to ever visit Fort Pickett. Um, it's in the middle of South, I, I guess, Southern Virginia, Southwest Virginia. Anyway, you and I show up same day. I don't, we didn't travel together, I don't think. And it gets a point in the first day where we have to ask the question, hey, Rue, Captain Lawrence Yacoubian, where are we staying? And he said, hey, well, I'll, I'll take care of you later. And I don't, John, you take it from there because I don't re remember what time of day you showed up. And I think your yeah, experience I'm, was a I'm little I'm not sure different. exactly. All I remember was like I had assumed I'd be staying in the lines. And he's like, oh, we don't know what the paperwork would be because of like, you know, you've got to like, you know, you got to pay for the, the things. Then we don't know if we can do that on behalf of a foreign person. You know, I don't know what to do. So anyway, he goes, I bought this uh, RV or like trailer. It wasn't an RV. It was a trailer, right? It was like, it was like one of the big ones that need like the fifth wheel. Totally. Yes. And he's like, I've, I've put it in the RV park. And I'm like, all right, let's just stop there for a moment. Why is there an RV park in the middle of a training ground? Right. right? Like that's the first question. Who's staying in an RV in the middle of a middle of a military range then we'll get to the, when did you buy a, a massive, you know, like caravan and, you know, how are we going to fit three? I mean, I don't know, he must be close to six foot, but you and I are both over six foot. How do you fit three six foot plus 200 pound plus guys in this thing? And just what? Like, yeah. So yours was, we don't know what to do with a guy from a different country, which was probably gobbledygook for me. I think Rue forgot that I was going to be there. I really did. And so I kept asking him as we got closer to uh, dinner time, I'm like, Rue, seriously, I need to know where I'm putting my head down. And, and just a little background. We had a lot of, a lot of NCOs that got pulled. Uh, no, I'm sorry. A lot of soldiers that were pulled from us for a deployment. And so we had a lot of senior guys and we were putting them through uh, some individual training, which left uh, us to have basically a gentleman's day working, uh, zero seven to maybe 1800 every day versus being out all the time. Uh, and so we were, we were to sleep inside versus being out in the field. And I'm like, Rue, I just, I mean, I can go sleep in the woods, but I brought stuff to stay inside a little typical U S military or U S army room. 
And we fi- finally says, sir, we, I'll take you to your room. And we drive to this RV park. And, and John, I'd been to that post, I don't know, 150 times. I didn't know that park was there. I had no clue. So the, the most amazing thing to me was next to where Rue had parked his RV or his, his caravan was these like the semi, semi-permanent one. Like I had like the lattice work around the yeah. bottom, had like pot plants out the front. Yeah. And the best part, and I don't know, like I don't want to get too Australian here, but there was, there was a sign out the front that said, cowboy the F up. And I'm like, what does that even mean? It doesn't mean anything. You, like, first of all, why? Second of all, what does that actually entail? Third of all, how? How do you cowboy up? That's not even a sentence. That doesn't make grammatical sense. What are you talking about? Yeah, well, I, I think it was like a 70-year-old Vietnam vet yeah. or something. And like, why he was living there. Middle of a military range. Yeah, it's crazy. So anyway, I think, did he take us over there at the same time? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so we're all there together. And he explains that he's purchased his RV. Then we walk in. And I, I survey the uh, inside of this RV. And there's, uh, there's one bed. And he's already told us that the three of us are going to stay there. Well, I know how these things work. There are things you can move around and create other spaces. But I also know that there's no way – John, you and I are about 6'3", six, 6'4", six, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. It's not going to take either one of us. We, we are not going to get a single good night's sleep for the next 15 days. And it's registering for both John and me. And John and I are good guys. We'll, we'll roll with the punches. No big deal. But I made Rue feel so bad that he offered me his queen-size bet. And I said, Rue, there's no effing way I'm taking your, uh, your bed. I'm just going to complain for the next 15 days, and you're going to have to listen to it. <laughs> but what I actually loved about this, right? So we had, we had a lot. I mean, you in particular had really long days, I remember. And, um, you know, what ended up happening was like every day at the end of the day, I think it was like 9 or 10 at night. And we and I think like a couple of captains or, or lieutenants would kind of come along, and we'd go and get some pizzas, and we'd like hang out in this, this RV and we watch some like crappy movie or like old eighties action film or something. And we just kind of all hang out and chill. And that's, that was actually one of my fondest memories of the time of national guard, but on, on that exercise as well, where we just kind of hang out and just have this decompress from the day. Right. Where you just, you know, but you know, I've got to tell the story on air. Uh, I, I already just told you guys this, but there was one of these nights where one of these young lieutenants, really good guy, really nice guy, very kind of straight-laced, right? Married young, very sensible, very smart. Anyway, so like we went off base and we went to pick up some food in, in anticipation of you and Rue getting back. So we're like, oh, we'll go and get some food and we'll come back. And so I think we went to like Walmart because someone needed, I don't know, some bandages or, or some like sunscreen, or I don't know, something. So we went in to get something and we're walking past those big DVD bins. And this is, you know, early 2010s, right? So DVDs are still pretty common. And he picks up this bright pink, DVD that was Bridesmaids. And at that moment, I didn't know what this movie was. I just saw him picking up a pink DVD about getting married. He's like, oh, I've been wanting to see this forever. And I was like, I'm like rubbing my hands together. I'm like, oh, we are going to have a field time with this kid tonight. We're like, we're just going to like, we're going to eviscerate him. We're Like he is going to be mocked so bad. That, like he's going to run back to mommy type thing. And I'm like, oh, I can just see the, the rest of my night laid out before me. This is going to be so much fun. And then like everyone else in the group's like, oh yeah, I really want to see that too. I'm like, all right. Um, all right, when we get back, when we get back, the Colonel and Rue, are they going to test strips of this guy? Like we are going to have some, like, you know, it's, I'm still going to get my moment, right? So we get back to the, to the RV, we got our food, jumps out, he's like, oh, I got a DVD for night. I'm like, here we go, here we go. And he's like, oh, I really want to see that too. I'm like, what is going on? What, like, why am I with like 
the, the most powerful military in the history of mankind and they all want to sit around and watch a movie called Bridesmaids? <laughs> what is going on? I'm, in fairness, like it was a brilliant movie and I love it and I, I've watched it many, many times since then. But at that particular moment, I was just completely lost. And, and my, you know, my anticipation of the fun we were going to have, you know, mocking someone was, was taken away from me and I was, I was devastated. Replaced by a fairly uh, entertaining and funny movie. Yeah, we, sure. I mean, it ended up being yeah. a good night. It was a great movie. But, yeah, well, yeah. And, and Melissa McCarthy, uh, every American knew that she was uh, starting to be pretty well known as a uh, funny uh, movie actress. So, yeah, no, you guys were completely validated and were in the right. But I just, at that particular moment, I just had this like visceral like memory. I can just feel that. You know, I can feel it washing over me of just like, what is going on here? I'm at an RV park in the middle of a military range with a bunch of like officers from the national guard who've deployed multiple times. In- infantry guys. About yeah. Bridesmaids. Grunts. Right? Yeah. Like, we're grunts. Anyway. Watching bridesmaids. Yeah. I'll just, I'll, I'll close out the RV story. John and I had maybe five feet, 10 inches of, of <laughs> length to sleep in. So we, we literally had to contort in ways just to fall asleep for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. We, we were in it together. And, uh, yeah, Rue's a, a fun guy. Was yeah. the uh, was the third person also tall? Rue, I, I, he wasn't as tall as us. He must have been close to six foot, I think. But uh, yeah, he's he roughly six. Yeah. Oh, he was with you. Oh, okay. It was, it, it was his RV. Yeah. So he was in, uh, he was in the queen bed. He was like, you know, you know, king of the castle, king of the castle in the in the queen bed in the back of the RV, and here's two six foot three guys, you know, sleeping on a converted couch. A converted couch wow. for one, and converted. Uh, little kitchen sitting area for the right. other yeah yeah, yeah but it was sounds fun. like an experience I, I, I it's one of those things where I, I don't think i want to do that again but uh it's good to think back to it yeah the, the only other story from that that i viscerally remember was um i was hanging out with you know one of the sergeants and he's like oh you see my truck it's really you know like it's brand new I was like, oh yeah it's a nice truck you know f-250 or something and he's like you see that dent in the back and i'm like yeah he's like i shot it i'm like <laughs> All right, you're gonna need a little more context than that. Um, he's like, "Yeah, I was trying to shoot a raccoon and I missed." I'm like, "All right, let's back <laughs> right up and let's start at the start of this story, and you can just give it all to me in one go." Because, yeah, anyway, that, let's just say that was that was a fairly interesting cultural experience. Was doing the National Guard thing for a couple of years. Yeah, it, it was interesting for me as well. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> cool. So, are are we two uh, the fourth? Uh, yeah, phase here of our abstract concepts. I mean, I can't wait to hear about wizards and, and curtains. Yeah, let me just, uh, I, th- I mean, I think I covered everything on transition. If I haven't, it's fine. But um, yeah, so wizards and curtains, right? So like uh, I was talking about like the horizon stuff, but wanting to see what's out there, wanting to see how it works, wanting to see, um, you know, the, the Emerald City, right? So if you guys, I don't know if you've ever heard the term like seeing, you know, looking behind the curtain or seeing the wizard behind the curtain, right? Mm-hmm. So it refers back to the Wizard of Oz. And it's that idea that, you pull back the curtain, you see it's just a little man with levers and buttons, right? And so I think, you know, that last phase of where I am now is, is at that, right? Like I spent my whole life searching to find out, you know, how do things tick, who, you know, who, who you know, makes things work, what's the processes, how does it actually happen? Um, and I think I'm kind of at that now where, you know, I'm not, I'm not anywhere in, in any pinnacle of importance or achieved any great thing, but being close enough to it, right? Like, you know, had lunch with people like Madeline Albright, you know, sit around and talk to Steve Hadley, you know, guys who were there and been there and done that and, and heard them tell the stories about it. 
Um, and, and I've kind of said, and this is not a reflection on those individuals, but just as a whole, you know, I've seen that, I've seen what the wizard is behind the curtain and that's an underwhelming experience kind of in itself, right? You reach the top and realize that's what, that's what's there and that's what it is. And there's that, that's kind of a level of acceptance, right? It's not to say it's bad or it's wrong. You just see it for what it is and, and all the glamour and all the illusion falls away. And now you just know it's a, you know, it's a bureaucratic process that someone who, is trying to finish a, a you know a document up to get home to see his kids by 5 p.m. has thrown something together and it's the kind of the best they do at the time. Whereas from you know from a distance, uh, from far away, from the other side of the world, it seems like some you know brilliantly thought up strategy of this and that. And it's like no, someone just came up with a good idea at one time or just happened to stumble across this or, or whatever it is. Um, and, and not only to see it, I mean, in my own small way, to be a microscopic cog as part of it. Um, and we, I think that's that is a big part of of what that's all about. And the interesting thing for me, one of the things that the one book I've always wanted to read, like you guys remember um, Zen: The Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, right? Mm-hmm. So my um, I, I've always wanted to write a book that the equivalent is like Zen and the Art of Lawn Care. Mm. And the reason being is that like when I you know, when I first bought my house, I remember that there's an old song by Dennis Leary in the late '90s called "Asshole." I don't know if you guys remember that. There's, you know, it was all about that kind of like over the top exaggerated Americana that we, you know, and I heard this in Australia, you know, um, eating burgers out of styrofoam containers, driving big Cadillacs, all that kind of stuff, right? It was kind of funny, but it was also, there's still a level of aspiration in, in it, even under all the sarcasm. But there was this line about, you know, I'm your average American, you know, with my feet on my table and books about war. And they talked about hardwood floors. And the house I bought in the, the suburbs of DC, um, you know, it's in this in this quaint kind of area where it's it's like a time capsule of 1950s, 1960s America. It was all original owner bought and it was still kind of all in that pristine condition. All the original owners are still there. And I walked in, it had hardwood floors. And going through that transitions, right, like that was in my head. I couldn't get that song out of my head for like a month. I'm like, I've become the guy from the arsehole song. <laughs> I've become that like stereotypical American suburban middle-aged guy and I think it was one time I was going to Costco um and I think I was like I was wearing like sneakers and cargo shorts and a polo I just sort of thrown on and I was about to walk out the door and I looked down at myself and I was like no I need to get changed my wife's like why you're fine I'm like no I just I can't I can't be that guy I can't you know, next to me growing a goatee out I can't be that guy I need to go and get changed I'm not ready to be there yet um but, you know, but like, so I've, I've, I thought about this, but, you know, like having a house in the suburbs, you know, you spend a lot of time mowing the lawn, right? And, and to me, you know, you, you, have, you have a lot of time when you're mowing the lawn, right? There's not a lot of intellectual stimulation. You walk back and forth for a couple of hours. That being said, it's, it's also really satisfying. It's a really enjoyable thing, especially if it's a nice day, it's really satisfying. It's not intellectually challenging. But so it leaves, it leaves my mind free to roam and to think things. And when that happens, weird stuff happens. And like, I have these existential kind of like philosophical, you know, things about, and and like, one of them is like how stupid humans are, right? Like lawn care has to be the dumbest human endeavor either. We spend, I don't know how many hours per year to get one type of plant to grow, right? And hundreds and hundreds of dollars of fertilizer and extra overseeding, which I might add, just before I came on here, I turned the sprinklers on for my overseeding so I have a good lawn next year, right? Like, so this is not pointing the fingers at anyone. I'm in that glass house. But like we spent all this money and time to get one sort of plant growing and then spent a whole bunch of time and money making sure another type of plant doesn't grow. And if you were like an alien who came down, you'd be like, 
what are these morons doing? Right. And the same way, you know, if a raccoon ended up in my, my attic as it did once, you know, my wife freaked out. I picked it up and was like, Hey honey, look what, look what I found. And she freaked out, get around the house, get exterminators. And yet if our cat, which is about the same size, furry, has claws, goes missing for more than like a couple of hours, everyone freaks out that we've lost our cat. Again, like from, from like 10 foot removed, like humans are so stupid in this stuff. Like, and we get so obsessed and we put so much time and effort into these things. But that's also kind of the heart of, of the human condition, right? It's that curation of the details that may not look like much but means something when you put them together, right? That's what art is, right? What's the difference between a toddler splattering paint on an empty canvas and like, you know, an abstract artist? It's a details, it's the meaning behind it, it's the meaning you infuse in it, it's the thought that goes into it. So on the one hand, you could be really cynical and skeptical like I am and mock it, which I do. Um, but like, if you take a step back from it and think about what does that mean and what does that say about us and who we are, there's actually kind of, there's value underlying that. And that kind of tells you something a little bit about the human condition. And the interesting thing is that when I stop and think about that is, you know, where did I want to be? What did I want to achieve? You know, there was times where you wanted to be president or you wanted to like, you know, be a senator or, you know, be a millionaire or whatever else. And I had friends who had that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to earn my first million by the time I'm 30. And here I am pushing my, you know, my lawnmower around my, my very humble, you know, mediocre, you know, house in the suburbs, you know, life, but very content with it, very happy and very satisfied. I think that's part of seeing the wizard behind the curtain too, right? And that's that part of growing up, maturing that, getting that sense of now, realizing there's satisfaction from the things. It may not be the glamorous, it may not be the shiny, it may not be the big illusion, but it's actually far more satisfying than we re- when we realize. And we kind of fail as, as kind of older guys or middle-aged guys in explaining that to younger men of, of what that is and what that has to do. And that's part of parenting, right? Like, you know, I refer to, you know, to parenting is, is it's a bit like the Marines, right? You know, embrace the suck. It is a grind. It is hard. It is tiring and exhausting. But then you have those mo- those exquisite moments where you see your kid learn a new word for the first time or do something new or, or, or suddenly master something that makes all that grind worthwhile. And it's kind of similar to that military experience. It's not for everyone. It's not going to be easy. If you, if you take it as a kind of day by day, by day minute by minute, pound for pound type thing, you know, it's probably harder than, than it's worth in the big scheme of things, but you do it for those moments of exquisite satisfaction and that's what you get from it. And I think about some of my friends, you know, my, my friend I referred to earlier who'd gone wandering, who'd achieved all these things, who'd met, you know, um, uh, you know, Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela and had, had been a part of it. And, you know, he got to his early 30s in that transition period and realised he didn't want to do it anymore and felt burnt out and went like backpacking for a couple of years in South America and then he went and tried to, I think he started studying to be a nurse and then that fell through. And now he's back in the NGO world. But, you know, like, you know, he, he accelerated to a, a point that I aspired to much faster than I did. But on balance, we get to where we are and, you know, you know, we are where we are, right? And, you know, no one's kind of ahead or behind. We've all got our own stories to tell. And the flip side is that I've got a friend of mine who I started the Department of Defense job with, the, the grad development program, who quit after two years because he hated the nine to five grind and went and did acting school, the, the school that Hugh Jackman went to and, and is in LA now trying to break. He's been in a movie with Ben Kingsley. You know, he's got another movie coming out soon, but he's never really kind of cracked it either. Um, and so he's, he's in this, this weird kind of space where he's doing good stuff. He's having a good time, but chasing that illusion, right? Chasing the, the Emerald City, trying to get to that great, you know, thing. And, and if he's happy doing it, then, then awesome. But like, that's not me. I'm not, 
I'm not going to keep chasing that thing for the sake of chasing it. You know, I don't need to try and be the next NASCAR driver. I've never been NASCAR because I'm not like NASCAR, but you know, I am a driver. I don't have to be the best driver. I don't have to be driving the fastest car. If I can go out and do that and enjoy it and get my satisfaction from it while I'm doing those other things as well, then that's enough for me. And the flip side to all of that is I've got a friend, a roommate of mine um, that I met when I was an intern in DC. And he, at the time, I thought was, was again, rocketing up to that point of aspiration that we all had, where he was doing his master's at Georgetown. He was, he was interning at Middle East Institute, I think. He was, you know, he was on the path. He was going to make it. He was going places where the rest of us were, were stuck back in our hometowns. Uh, and then, like, halfway through his, his master's, he decided he didn't want to do it anymore, moved back to L.A. and became a realtor. And at the time, that seemed to me like the, the greatest sellout, right? Like, that was, you know, no offense, I'm not trying to, not to denigrate him, I'll get there in a minute. But like at the time, it seemed like, you know, he had it. He had his, he, he was grasping it and he gave up and, and took the easy route. And, but now he's highly successful. He's got, you know, great house in Long Beach. You know, he's now, you know, reaching the pinnacle of this field where he's back in DC every year lobbying Congress over a massive part of our economy, right? He found his own way back. It was just a different route. So I think, that's what I mean by the wizard behind behind the curtain, right? There's there's a part of it that, that is a cynical, skeptical, you know, when you see what for what it really is, you can get disillusioned and and I, you know, I've definitely become disillusioned in some ways. But I think there's a flip side to that where it's 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 getting that sense of now, getting that acceptance and saying, I understand what it is now, I understand where my place in it is it. And and look, there are guys my age in my jobs, like you know, they have the office next to me. Are achieving more, they're, they're, they're putting out books, they're going on CNN, you know, regularly, they're, you know, whatever it is. But there's a Faustian bargain in that as well that they don't tell you about when you're younger, which is to say that, that they do that by like just working themselves to a bone and just, you know, they, they make, you know, maybe they're smarter than me, maybe they're, they're better than me. And they, frankly, they, they, they probably are. Like, I, I don't try and claim to be the smartest guy or the most capable guy. They're smarter than I am, but, but it still takes hard work. You don't get there without that hard work. And at a certain point, whether consciously or subconsciously, I made the decision that's not for me. I'm not going to work all night. I'm not going to stay up to 1 a.m. trying to do a PhD thesis just to, like, you know, get that, that ego validation of, of a, you know, the title on my business card. That's not to say you shouldn't. And if, if someone's passion is there, go and do it. Great for you. It's not where, where my path lies. And, again, that's acceptance from the 20s of where you have to do everything, you have to be everything to accepting that who you are and what your place is and, and what is valuable to you and what's satisfying to you and accepting that and accepting that other people are going to get ahead of you and going to go on a different path, but understand there are trade-offs that they've accepted that I'm not willing to. Right. And I think, you know, it's kind of a, to tile that back together. I think back to that kid, you know, on the terraces on the side of the hill at the school looking out over the horizon. And I guess my, my azimuth check in all this, you know, my guiding star is I think, you know, there's, look, there's, there's people who came from humbler beginnings who have achieved far more than me. You know, the Madeleine Albright, right, literally came from, you know, fled war to, to being, you know, one of the highest positions in our land and, and, and as a reputation and, a, uh, and a, a profile that live on through the ages in the history books, right, like achieved much more from much less. But when I look back, I think if I went back to that kid, you know, that 15-year-old kid, if I did a Bill and Ted, right, because it's cool again, if I got in that Bill and Ted telephone box and like something turned up at lunchtime you know back in the mid 90s that kid and said here's what it's, here's what's ahead of you here's where you're going to go here's what you're going to do here's a life you're going to build for yourself like how would he feel about that like would he be chuffed with it and i think that's again that's the animus you, you you use that like what 
what would old me think? No, I don't care what other people think about me. I don't care if someone else is impressed by it. I don't care what my, you know, social media standing or if I get recognized somewhere else. But I think what would, would, would teenage me think of where I am now and who I am and what I've become? And would they be happy with that? And I think that's, that's a, that cycle. That's what ties that all together from the horizon to the serendipity, which it was serendipity. I was lucky, right? I was lucky to get those opportunities. Um, but but that, that's not all it, right? There's a privilege that came along with it. There's hard work. My parents put me in a position. They were able to put me into a position where I was, you know, experienced enough. I was educated enough, you know, and, and I also did. I worked hard. I, you know, those opportunities wouldn't have opened up to me if I hadn't proven myself at each step. And there's those, there's parts of it, like the think tank in Canberra, where there were, you know, there was three or four other people with me who could have taken the leap. They could have taken charge. They could have led the planning committee. They could have moved to the States and, and, and changed career, but they didn't. And I've got other friends who did. They went on completely different paths. I've got a friend who went and started a, um, um, an incubator and tech startup in Myanmar, right? Because he's just a crazy bastard like that, which I love him for. And he's all, you know, he's just an awesome guy, right? So that's not to say my path is the right path. So it's better than someone else's, the path I took. But in all those steps, serendipity came up to it. I didn't plan it. I didn't say, I'm going to go here so I get there. But there's, a, you know, there's an old saying of like, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I get, or the more I plan, the luckier I get, right? So I was lucky, but I was lucky because I put in that hard work and I, I tried to put myself in positions. I tried to set up circumstances that would go my way and they did, but it was still, there was still a bit of luck. And the other flip side to that is, you know, a lucky person is someone who takes opportunity when it knocks, right? Everyone gets opportunity from time to time. And it's the person who takes that opportunity and makes something of it. And there was opportunities that I knocked back or I could have taken that I kind of regret now, but you know, it is what it is. I ended up where I ended up. Um, but that's, so that's, that's where I reflect at this point in my, you know, coming up to, coming up, I'm turning 40 uh, later this year. Um, you know, that, that kind of midpoint, that, that milestone in our lives, you, you look back and, and see where you've been and, and how you got there. I think that's, that's what I've taken through. That's, that's the phases and those are the lessons I've taken from it. Is there a uh, fifth phase, John? I guess we'll have to see, right? Like, because the, the scary thing about that, I remember one of my uh, first positions in the Department of Defense, I sat down with this senior guy. And, you know, again, I was in my mid-20s. I was, I have to do everything now. I have to be everything right, right now and this year and I have to whatever. And he said to me, when do you intend to retire? I was like, I mean, I don't know, 65, 70. I mean, these days, maybe 80. He's like, all right, so you're, you know, let's say 25 or whatever I was. He's right. All right. So you've got a 40 year career ahead of you. What are you going to do for the next 40 years? And as a 25 year old, that was a smack in the face, right? That was a bucket of cold water. Like, Oh crap. And even now, right? Like I feel like I've, I've, I've done a lot. I've done a lot of things. I've achieved a lot. I feel like I've reached a certain level, but then I look at it and I maybe, maybe halfway through my career, maybe a, th a third, you know, a third of my way through my career. What am I going to do for the next 20 years? Am I going to keep doing the thing I'm doing now? Am I just going to incre incrementally keep going and hope? Am I going to just rely on serendipity? I think you definitely, you know, there's definitely a fifth and a sixth and a seventh phase. I just, I don't quite know what that looks like yet. And I think that's where I'm in the moment. That's, that's kind of the modern, modern middle-life crisis is trying to define what that is, what that looks like, and then how you go about enacting it in a, in a meaningful way or a deliberate way, as opposed to just randomly stumbling into it like you did in your 20s. Yeah, phase five for me, John, is uh, podcasting. Yeah, or like, like, you know, basically spending all weekend, which here's another anecdote, right? So like as an 18-year-old or a 17-year-old, 16-year-old, I used to hate that stereotype that men were only about sports, right? Like that, that was that, 
that thing, guys. Are, and, and like, I enjoyed sports to a degree, but like, you know, I, I wanted to go and I want to learn about world news. I want to learn about politics. I wanted to, I wanted to be there. I want to be a part of it. I wanted to learn this and that. And I, I, you know, fundamentally reject that whole idea. And I kind of resented sport and that idea that that, that kind of jock culture. Um, I've got to the age I am now and, I, uh, you know, I, I stay up to 2 a.m. on Friday night watching my Australian football team play, then get up to watch qualifying, you know, for the Formula One and then switch between qualifying on you know, the race on Sunday for the Formula One to spending the afternoon watching football to then going and taking the kids outside to kick the ball around. And I'm like, oh, shit, I became that guy. <laughs> <laughs> it goes back to the, the, the arsehole song, right? Like I, I have become that stereotype that I rejected so much. But I mean, part of that is is reaching that you know that, that that wizard behind the curtain. I spent so long wanting to understand the world, wanting to understand the whatever. I now spend all day reading about war and about policy and about you know talking about cyber warfare and terrorist attacks and that kind of thing. You know, it's kind of flipped now. I just want to tune out and do something that is relatively meaningless. And, you know, statistically speaking, everything basically comes out at fifty percent if you take a long enough uh, timeline. Um, or maybe within one or two percentage points. So it's, it's basically meaningless, except the, the meaning you give you. It's like, you know, mowing the lawn, right? Like, does it matter if your team wins? Does that affect any aspect of life? No, but it affects you if you invest or, in, 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 you know, put that interest and that value and that emotional uh, investment in it. So then it, then it means something. It has the meaning you give it, right? Yep. Hey, so Daniel, hit, hit, hit uh, John with our standard question. I, I think we know the answer. Yeah, well, I first just want to say real quick that it, as a 20-something, uh, I, I don't know that I've ever had it explained to me like as, as comprehensively as that or with that level of insight, um, the sort of the, the stages that you go through. Uh, and I think that you're right on the bead, right on the money with uh, the whole 20-something feeling like they have to be everything and be the best at everything and do everything, at least for me. 40 so, years, man. Uh, 40 years till you retire. That's a long time. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that, that was really cool. So I appreciate that. And, and then the, the thing that you said about the, uh, would, would teenager you like be happy with where you are now? I've, I haven't heard it that way before. The way I've heard it, well, a similar version of that is uh, the exercise of sitting down and writing your own ob- obituary. And uh, in a... It, you know, for each category of your life, your familial uh, relationships, your workplace, your social um, career, all that stuff, you, you write down the things that you've achieved and what people recognize you for and, and remember you for. And then you kind of reverse engineer from that end state. So it's, it, I, I feel like it could be a good exercise in both directions to say, you know, would teenager me like what I've done with my life so far? And then also, um, am I kind of on track to, to, to meet uh, to match up with the obituary that I want to have for myself. Yeah, um, I mean, the other, the other thing to think about that is like in a long enough timeline, everything's a memory, right? Like nothing lasts forever. So everything's going to be a memory eventually. So how do you collect those memories to, to look back on and, and kind of get that warm, fuzzy feeling? I mean, for me, it's, you know, sitting on a rooftop bar in, in Romania, having gone and speak at a conference about, I don't know, what disinformation I think I went to, or like leading the minister of Lithuania in a war game on, on something, or, you know, having um, dinner with an independent, you know, having a steak with an independence leader from a small country at a, a high-end restaurant in Abu Dhabi. I mean, there, you know, there, there's things I've been and done, and, and some of them seem really surreal, and some of them seem kind of silly, but like you look back on it, and you just think like, 
you know, it's kind of a moment in time, but, but when you collect them together, um, you know, what, what does a picture paint, I guess? Right. Right. Cool. Well, uh, with that, I'll, I'll move to our standard question that we like to ask all our guests. Um, and it goes do we, like do we, this. Do, do we still like asking it, Daniel? Well, we've gotten some feedback that it's, uh, uh, tired, I think it's a tired question. <laughs> we, we, we have two people that have listened to every episode, John, and that came from one of the two. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you could imagine listening to the same podcast, you know, and have the same question be asked. Uh, but I do think it's an interesting question and each guest so far has had a different insight and different answers. So here we go. Uh, if you rewound and you were at the age of 25 and had not yet joined the military or, or anything, and had a, a, for all intents and purposes, blank slate, would you rather join the military or take a stab at uh, a career in stand-up comedy? Go to, go to open mics and just try to make it. Um, I, I would have picked the military, right? Like I go, I go back to my, you know, my friend who you know, was a little past 25, but not far off, who like gave it all up to go and, and become an actor, right? And, and I admire him for that. Um, but that's just not me. It's just not part of who I am. But I mean, there's a, you know, it goes along with that cynical or skeptical streak, but there's a pragmatic, um, you know, I, I don't believe in chasing the dream for the sake of chasing the dream. Uh, I respect those who do, um, but there's just, it's just not something of, of who I am or what I'm about. I mean, um, I think, first of all, I'd, I'd probably be terrible as a stand-up comic, but I don't know. I mean, I, I think, um, again, for me, it's, it's all about you put the pieces together and, and it doesn't, doesn't have to be the, the highlights. I don't have to be a Formula One driver to enjoy being able to go out and find a way to enjoy doing motorsport and racing and, and satisfy that part of who I want to be um, in different ways. I mean, even a stand-up comic. I, I, I know a guy who works at a think tank and went and did, you know, was a stand-up comedy, uh, a stand-up comic as kind of a part-time gig on the side. I mean, I think that's that's a modern life. I think millennials are all about that. It's, you know, you, you're not your job. You're not your one thing. You, you are your, you know, well... I think a well-rounded person has multiple facets to their personality. You don't have to be all in on one thing. You, 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 you put it together in a, in a lattice work of interesting mm-hmm. things. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, I think we were going to guess that you would have said military. Yeah. yeah but I mean, again, I, I think you've probably heard of the last hour or two that like my ability to make smart life decisions is not great. And um, I, I'm kind of dumb and I kind of like big explosions. So Right. Well, you and I are similar in, in those ways. Hey, uh, John, let, let's close this by uh, you telling us about your family. Uh, so immediate family. So I have, uh, when you met, you met one of the, the members. So um, uh, my wife and I, have, I mean, I guess we've now been together, you know, we've, we've lived together for over 10 years. I mean, she moved to, to Canberra uh, to be with me. So I was in 08. Um, you know, I think um, we're very similar in a lot of ways. We're, we're both fairly headstrong. We're, we're, fairly impatient. Um, but you know, we, uh, both probably a little stubborn. Um, but no, I mean, I think, you know, we're both very strong personalities for, for better or worse at times, but I, I think we need to be that with each other. Um, our, you know, we've got two children. My, my daughter Zoe, you've met, um, is, is something of a shrinking violet that, uh, that we truly <laughs> out of a, a shell. Right. Um, my son's, um, I got a son's uh, about to turn two actually, uh, he's delight. He's a little bit uh, quieter, but, but no less active um, or energetic. Um, and and so they, you know, they they're great together. I, I actually don't think we have two children. I think I have one, like humanoid mass of flesh and bone that occasionally detaches to create more chaos, and then reattaches at some point. And and you know, so 
Um, and then I have, I have two sisters and a brother back in, in Adelaide in Australia. My parents are obviously still back there. Um, so, you know, and then I have uh, in-laws in California and, and Colorado. So really spread out. I mean, I, you know, I've lived away. I moved away from my hometown 15 years ago. So I've been away from my, fam- from my um, family for a long time. I guess we've got our own, you know, core unit now. Uh, and same with friends. And, and I, you know, my, my friendship network, or at least those my long-term friends, have all scattered to the wind. I've got one that's in Ireland. I've got one in Melbourne, you know, LA. They're, they're literally scattered around the world. I couldn't go to any one city and, uh, you know, be around a core of them. They're all scattered across the world. So, um, you know, that's, that's a network. I've got, you know, my new friends that I've, I've built here in, in D.C. Um, but, yeah, my family's in, in something of a, a core network that I've been away for a long time. Friends have been away from, but you know, in this day and age, you know, you, you're connected. You you send messages, you know, throughout the day. You, you FaceTime a couple of times a week. Um, you know, so it's a it's a different situation. You know, you get to be be part of it, but we try and get back as as often as we can too. So, awesome. Well, John, thank you so much for uh, joining us and telling your story. I, you and I hadn't seen each other in eight years. It was really uh, good seeing you and, and good catching up. And uh, I think Daniel and I learned a few things tonight. That's sure great. Well, thanks for the opportunity. enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using. To share your thoughts, head over to our website at podso1.io, and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly. Thanks for listening.